hour. All right, perfect. So I invited um, Dr. Yuya Hagawara and uh, Ms. Katie Reese here today to talk about palliative care after I had the opportunity to rotate with both of them um, back in December for a nephrology elective. And um, we really appreciate uh, them coming to present to us. So thank you so much. Okay. So yeah, I think I'm not muted, so hopefully you can hear me. And Maria, thank you for the introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure having you rotate with us. Um, so yes, today, um, Kitty and I, we wanted to cover really the basics of what palliative care is so they have a good understanding of what palliative care as well as hospice is. Um, and I wanted to kind of present about some of the, um, the newer literature about palliative care and nephrology, some of the newer initiatives going on. And then we'll focus on um, advanced care planning. Um, and then also, my understanding is this Friday, I have a, an hour with the fellows. With that session, we'll focus more on the actual communication skills. So let me see, how do I... So yeah, disclosures, no disclosures. Uh, so yeah, I found out, um, um, I came across an article on um, Scientific American. So they have a great series on American dialysis. Um, and in their December article, they had an article on nephrology and palliative care. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up to your attention. So hopefully you have some time to read that. Um, and, um, and in this article, it does um, talk about uh, a case with Mr. Bob Swain, who was a police chief um, who was um, evaluated for uh, an episode where he, he lost consciousness and diagnosed with impending kidney failure, where he was told by a nephrologist he had probably less than a year where he needed dialysis. And if lucky, uh, he would then eventually uh, be considered for transplant. Um, but he was um, fortunate uh, that he was able to have a good conversation with this nephrologist. Um, and the issue was he, he did not want anything to do with dialysis, especially the frequent uh, blood draws, um, the dialysis visits, hospitalizations, catheters, uh, and his, his goals were really to live out whatever days he had with at home with his wife and his, his um, dog badge. Um, and I was fortunate that Mr. Swain had access to palliative care and hospice. Um, and it seems he died comfortably at home. I think he was diagnosed in spring and by summer um, he did pass away, but um, it was at home and, and in comfort, according to his goals and wishes. So, introduction. So, there are increasing number of patients with advanced chronic kidney disease, who I think you are well know are older, frail, have multiple medical issues, poor functional status, and uh, patients with advanced chronic kidney disease with or without dialysis do have high symptom burden and poor quality of life. 
However, um, and this is a nationwide issue, present state of collaboration between nephrology and palliative care is not ideal. Um, and I know it, it is very hard for you guys as nephrologists because a lot of our patients, very, very difficult to predict a patient's prognosis. Um, and what we need to work towards is really more training to navigate complex end of life decisions. And also uh, we need to start considering is, does everyone automatically go on dialysis when they're very old and then frail? So um, the first part I wanted to talk about palliative care. What is palliative care? So palliative care is a interdisciplinary or interprofessional medical specialty that focuses on really preventing and relieving suffering. And really we work towards the best quality of life for patients uh, with any type of serious illness and, and not just the patients and for these families as well. Often uh, palliative care gets introduced for complicated symptom management, um, shared decision-making, decision um, frequently establishing goals of care that are uh, focusing on talking about values and preferences. Um, and we do get involved frequently for communication between patients and all those involved in care, including primary care physicians, nephrology, um, other subspecialties. And then we do have the psychosocial uh, and spiritual support uh, that we could provide for patients and their family. Um, and what I can say is for uh, what we typically see for inpatient consults, relatively um, more focus on goals of care communication, that's probably about 70%, and we get a large number of consults from the ICUs. Uh, but in our outpatient clinic, a lot of our referral is from the cancer center um, for symptom management. And probably the percentage uh, reverses where more than 70% are pure symptom management in our outpatient clinic. And, and that's... Um, Still because, I mean, we don't have enough palliative care providers and a lot of the, the goals of care we have in our inpatient setting, we started term, terming them late goals of care because um, when they're in the ICU and severely sick on a ventilator and then we're trying to make life or death decisions, um, you're, um, the goal, I mean, we're talking about goals, but oftentimes we're, we're asking for them for a, a decision to be made versus we want to gradually move more towards early goals of care where we start bringing these discussions up, but still have time to think about it and aren't forced to make a decision. Um, one thing that frequently gets mistaken is um, palliative care and hospice. So hospice, so, so this is one thing I wanted to make sure we're very clear, hospice um, is, a system for patients with a life expectancy less than six months. And this is what we typically call comfort care or comfort focused care, comfort care only. Versus, it, it was, we could term ourselves non-hospice palliative care, especially what we do in a hospital here. Um, as palliative care, you could have palliative care at any point. Uh, for someone with a serious illness. And 
frequently, like we, what we do in outpatient for our cancer patients is we provide the symptom management along while they get their cancer care with the goal to prolong their lives. So palliative care, um, so yeah, all of hospice care, it's palliative care as you see here, um, but palliative care is more broader than hospice. But still um, we see consular, we get phone calls and pages throughout the hospital um, when they mention palliative care, um, they're meaning comfort care or end of life care, which is not true. So with um, emerging literature, and so, so palliative care has the most history uh, with oncology. And so there has been more um, literature if you look at the oncology world. And so there's been more and more emerging literature from the oncology arena where they have shown if you involve palliative care early, um, it can improve quality of life but then you may have less ER visits, less hospital deaths, and less like length, length of stay. Um, but there's growing evidence of benefit in other chronic diseases and organ failure, such as COPD, CHF, as well as chronic kidney disease. One study that significantly impacted our field was a study from Temo at Harvard where she was able to demonstrate um, early outpatient palliative care um, involvement for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer patients where with her study, there was with the group that had early palliative care, there was actually surprising, I mean, increased survival along with better quality versus the group that just had the normal care with palliative chemotherapy or radiation. So what we are proposing from what we're seeing is our previous um, historically involvement with comfort care or hospice was, you would do everything possible to prolong your patient's life until the very end where there were no options left and then you um, focused on comfort with hospice benefits. Uh, but we're seeing a trend where we want palliative care involved early on in their care, as you see here, um, and then gradually focusing more towards end of life care. And then bereavement services after even, I mean, the patient dies. So especially um, after the Tamil study, uh, we have seen a growth in a number of programs nationwide um, and majority of larger or hospitals and institutions do have palliative care programs, as you see here. And I think the growth, really significant growth since about 2000 to 2004 and afterwards. Um, however, um, despite the growth, um, in terms of palliative care providers, there's only about one palliative care physician for 1,200 seriously ill patients. Um, 
And considering the number of fellowship graduates, so like for Iowa, we we have two fellows and there's another program that has one fellow. So the maximum is three fellow, three new palliative care board eligible physicians per year for the state of Iowa. Um, and then nationwide, there's only about um, a little less than 400 fellowship slots. And so considering that um, there are people who are already um, palliative care physicians, retiring palliative care physicians, uh, we anticipate continued shortage with palliative care physicians. And next, um, wanted to look at um, some of the data um, for palliative care in chronic kidney disease. And so traditionally, I mean, and with our program, it's ideal if, um, because palliative, I mean, patients with advanced chronic kidney disease do have palliative care needs, especially symptom um, needs, symptom control needs for years before death. And then also they have their functional decline, poor quality of life. And so it, it makes sense that palliative care could be started early um, to relieve those suffering. And then it is best if as their disease advances, we could start having more and more goals of care discussion uh, where the goals shift towards more quality of life rather than sur survival. And then as you saw in, in the graph before, um, then palliative care assumes more of the priority or the quality of life um, takes over priority over disease-directed care. And then if it's a smooth transition to hospice care, um, probably, you know, that's for the patients is also. So what are some of the benefits um, of palliative care? Um, this was one study, um, recent study that did look at all the Medicare beneficiaries with end-stage kidney disease um, who received inpatient palliative care which was interesting only, I mean, in less than 1% of the whole population or the Medicare beneficiary population with end-stage kidney disease. Um, but when they matched uh, it with patients who got usual care, so patients who died in the hospital had fewer length of stay and their total cost of hospitalization was less. And if they survived, uh, the hospitalization, um, there was no significance in terms of length of stay. The cost of the hospitalizations was slightly higher, um, but their hospice enrollment within 30 days was much, much higher for patients who had palliative care involvement. So potentially there is, again, there's not that many studies out yet, uh, but there's potential that um, palliative care could help with especially the length of stay and the costs. But then there are benefits, but then there's still, like, like um, I mentioned before, there's still um, lots of disconnect or barriers that we need to work on between palliative care and kidney care. So palliative and hospice care uh, definitely underutilized for patients with advanced chronic kidney disease. Um, and 
uh, for patients getting admitted under and who have end-stage renal disease only account for 2.2%. Um, that of those patients getting admitted for hospice. And uh, this table shows compared with other diseases, patients going into, um, and this is a recent like 2018 data. And so um, there's lots of patients getting admitted uh, to hospice for dementia, stroke, heart issues. And if you can see um, the median length in, enrolled in hospice is only eight days compared with their dementia, which is 55 days. So a lot shorter um, days in hospice. And if you look at all the Medicare spending by diagnosis uh, for 2018, uh, for hospice, chronic kidney disease was only 1.1% compared with the 25% for dementia. Um, so very few people getting uh, hospice services. Um, and, and some of the things we need to especially work on is, again, medical teams often equate palliative care with end of life. And so making sure everyone understands that palliative care is something you could start early. Um, and then uh, for, I mean, we have good access, you know, within the UIHC system, uh, but there is uneven access, especially for, um, chronic kidney disease patients who are more like in rural areas. And, and we need do need better models of care uh, for these patients. Um, and then probably the biggest barrier is our Medicare rule, which classified dialysis as life extending treatment. So unfortunately, it's very rare for someone to get concurrent care uh, with hospice while they're on dialysis. So that could be, and that's probably one of the biggest barriers that we have only 1% of the Medicare spending used for chronic kidney disease patients. So what are some initiatives going on moving forward uh, for the future? Um, so I kind of want to cover two things that we, or I'm um, hearing more and more about in our Academy. Um, and I don't know if anyone has been doing some of these things um, or if it's still kind of things you're, you're here in your nephrology um, assemblies as well. And so um, there's been uh, talks about conservative kidney management as an alternative to dialysis. So, so um, data from Australia, Canada, um, have suggested that, especially for older adults, um, older than 75, with a high burden of comorbidity and functional impairment, um, that whether they start dialysis or manage conservatively, there has been little difference for life expectancy or quality of life. And so this conservative kidney management um, is a treatment option for patients with end-stage kidney disease uh, that through shared decision-making, and more of a holistic patient-centered care approach uh, that you would emphasize quality of life without pursuing dialysis or transplantation. And, and this is best delivered through a very collaborative approach, which will uh, include uh, nephrologists taking the lead, but including the primary care physicians, uh, nurses, dietitians, social workers, 
And if, when, whenever there's high complex needs, palliative care team as well. So components of the conservative kidney management. So of course you, in nephrology would do the medical management of kidney disease. This is probably your bread and butter, um, slowing down the kidney disease progression, uh, good blood pressure management, treatment of anemia, uh, et cetera. And then good symptom management, um, including quality of life care. And this is where palliative care could assist with um, advanced care planning, crisis management planning, again, palliative care expertise if needed, as well as um, getting uh, patients and families ready for end of life care. Um, and so this was a, a, a table from the same group that presented on the conservative kidney management where you see how the management is in, in the step three as similar to the previous slide. And there was a study uh, by Wong, I think she's out in San Francisco with UCSF, or no, maybe Washington. Yeah, I'm sorry, I think it was Washington. Um, so um, she, she did a um, qualitative study on um, surveying um, US nephrologists uh, who are more of the pioneers in this conservative kidney management about their experiences. And then uh, two themes have come up where one, um, the nephrologist talk, spoke about person-centered practices where they described a holistic approach to care that included basing treatment decisions on one matter, most to individual patients, framing dialysis as an explicit choice, uh, being mindful of the biases in medical decision-making and being flexible to the changing needs, values, and preferences of patients, and then improvising a care uh, infra infrastructure. So as you know, you do something new like this, you know, there's multiple challenges with our current health system that could become barriers. And so, um, so figuring out way to overcome that. And I did just um, take two quotes that were in this study. Um, they're, and they're both from quotes from nephrologists. So first quote, I try to talk to patients, let them know I see them as people, not cases. I try to let them see me as people and not some kind of omnipotent problem solver. We try to establish a human report. And basically the message is you're in a pickle. You've got to decide what's important for you. And I'll try to help you get whatever we can. Another quote from a nephrologist. I really try to start out with learning who patients are and what their experience has been and how they see their health. I really dive into it from a values-based conversation and learn about them, learn about their values and then incorporate that into thinking about treatment. So I, yeah, I thought some of these quotes were really, really helpful from the study. Um, the next um, initiative I wanted to, this was a, a relatively new concept for me, um, the last um, Academy Assembly I, I attended. Um, but I know the, the studies, they've been, there's been several studies or reports out for this past five to eight years about palliative dialysis. I don't know how 
if, if this is currently um, being done with any of your practices or not. Um, but this is, especially if, if you, if for our field, if we attend uh, nephro palliative talk, uh, palliative dialysis is being frequently mentioned um, as a way um, where you focus more on relieving symptoms with dialysis rather than um, your standard dialysis care metrics and lab results. Um, and I know um, people have been talking more so, you know, when, when it's more and more clear their prognosis is less than one year with aggressive care um, that there has been um, palliative dialysis being mentioned um, during their last year of life. And especially this, this is helpful um, knowing that it's very hard to get the current hospice care while you're continuing dialysis. Um, but more so, this will be something um, initiated by nephrology and it's for, I mean, something palliative care could assist with. Um, and last, um, Katie is gonna talk more in detail about um, how to have advanced care planning discussions as well as some of the forums you need to learn about if you haven't done that many um, advanced care planning, um, especially with the forums. Um, but I mean, advanced care planning is really uh, your early goals of care discussion uh, that you really value patients' personal values, goals, preferences. And there's been um, several studies that, um, that show that if you have a good advanced care planning discussion, um, it has positively enhanced patient's sense of hope. And also there's been reports that having these discussions deepens the relationship with um, the patient and nephrologists. And similar with palliative care and hospice, advanced care planning uh, for chronic kidney disease care is not well integrated. And so uh, a report shows that fewer than 10% of patients uh, report discussing end-of-life issues with their nephrologist. And also patients who are on dialysis, less than one-third of patients have advanced directive. And if they were to have advanced directives, uh, relatively few dialysis patients choose to be DNR, even though their chances of survival after being fully resuscitated are likely to be relatively low. Of course, it depends on their age and other comorbidities. Um, and also, uh, interesting patients who do have an advanced directive, typically on any of their forums or discussions have not addressed about withdrawal of dialysis. So that's the one thing you especially would need your help to work on um, with future advanced care planning discussions. And from here, um, I'm gonna turn it over to Katie to talk a little bit more in detail about advanced care planning. Yes, thank you, Yuya. Um, my name is Katie Reese. I I am the palliative care social worker on the inpatient side of the world here. 
Um, and so I work mostly up on the palliative care unit, um, but I do see um, patients housewide that palliative care is involved with as I'm able to. Um, let me bring up my slides here. Hopefully. All right. Hopefully everybody can see that. And let me, okay. So I want to talk a little bit specifically about what is advanced care planning? Um, what does it all involve? What are some types of advanced care planning that could be done with, with some or all of your patients ideally? Um, just to help with those transitions of care, um, helping identify, you know, what is important to people, um, what are their goals, what are the values, et cetera, and what would be ideal for them in terms of treatment options. Um, so advanced care planning, a very general overview is it's essentially making decisions about the type of care that you would want to receive if you become unable to speak for yourself or if you're unable to make your own decisions for, for whatever reason it might be. Um, so it's your decisions, your care, and in our setting, when working with patients, it's their decisions and their care. Um, so it's them outlining what they want or what they do not want um, and what they find important to them. Um, it, it is almost always based on personal values, preferences, and discussions. So what I think might be important for me um, might not be important for the, the patient in room 7338. Um, so it, it's very, very much an individualized process for each particular patient. Um, in addition to pointing out, you know, what treatment options or what things you do or do not want, it's also identifying a surrogate decision maker. Um, so if you're not able to speak for yourself, you would appoint someone to speak on your behalf for you when you're not able to. Um, it's also clarifying treatment preferences and then um, ideally developing an individualized goals of care um, based on that patient's circumstances and situation. Um, part of ACP, um, advanced care planning, is also communicating those wishes um, with your decision makers, with your family members. Um, it doesn't do any good if you appoint somebody to be my decision maker, um, but then not share what's important. So you know, I have my sister as my power attorney, my medical power attorney. She's my surrogate decision maker. So I have made sure to uh, be very clear about what I do and do not want. So she knows if she is, has to step into this position, you know, what my preferences are. Um, and hopefully um, with ACP, it will help prevent any future conflict. Um, I'm going to guess most of you, if not all of you, have probably dealt with a patient situation um, where maybe a couple family members wanted this for their loved one, and then a couple other family members wanted something opposite for their loved one, um, and they're all you know in distress about what to do. Um, but if the the discussions would have been held, and if the patient themselves would have had things clearly outlined. Um, then it probably could have prevented a lot of conflict for those, that particular patient. Um, so advanced care planning includes advanced directives. Um, and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about what that is, but um, they uh, consist of living will documents, uh, durable power 
um, of attorney for medical health care decisions. Um, and then honoring your wishes um, is another example of um, an advanced directive here in Iowa, as well as the iPost, which I'm guessing some of you or most of you have heard about. Um, so why is ACP important? Why do we think that almost all, if not all patients should at least have the opportunity to do this? Well, in the United States, as of right now, um, per CDC, 60% uh, of the population has at least one chronic medical condition and 40% have at least two chronic medical condition. condition. Um, they, these chronic conditions are also the leading cause of death and disability in the United States. Um, so based on that alone, it, it shows a high percentage of people have a, a, a chronic medical condition um, that is going to impact their health and their life. Um, what we also know is that advances in medical science and technology um, continue to offer new approaches, new treatment options, new interventions um, to treat and manage these chronic illnesses. Um, but what we know is, is a lot of these, or most of these chronic illnesses um, do not have a, a cure. So we're treating, we're managing, but we're not curing the disease. So the patient is going to have to deal with this for the rest of their life in most cases. Um, the other important aspect of ACP is the fact that it not, it, it enhances um, education about the particular illness a patient might have, um, which in, includes treatment options, pros and cons to those treatment options, um, as well as maybe prognosis, depending on what illness and what stage they're in. Um, but just the fact that sitting down and talking about this, it, it's providing education and information to the patient and their and their family members if they're, if they're engaged in the discussions. Um, what we know is that the trajector, trajectory of many chronic illnesses are very unpredictable. Um, so many people, including those with CKD, um, you know, suffer many complications um, from, from their illnesses. They have maybe some acute medical crises that uh, come up, um, frequent hospitalizations um, and or exacerbations with whatever illness they might have. Um, so we never know when something might happen essentially with these patients. And so we want to have prepared, we want to have discussions. Um, and so they feel prepared for whenever one of these things might happen. Um, and as we all know, um, tragic and unexpected events and incidents and accidents can happen to any of us at any time. Um, so even, you know, feeling as a pretty healthy gal in my thirties, I am not guaranteed tomorrow and I don't know, something could happen to me tonight, tomorrow morning, I'm just not sure. Um, but that way I, I've had my documents, I've had these discussions with my um, surrogate decision makers so they know um, what is important to me and what I would and would not want. Um, it offers a sense of control, preparedness, empowerment and peace for a lot of people knowing that they've had these discussions and that they've essentially told their loved one, this is what I want. It's giving them some control over their situation, even when they might not be able to speak their own voice at some point. Um, and a big one here is, I hear this a lot on my unit, is the fact that the patient themselves had documented these things, had these discussions. It helps relieve the burden of decision-making from family members. You know, I can't tell you how many times I had a, a son or a daughter say, I know this is exactly what mom would want. Want She has told us this a million times. It's outlined very, very clearly. So we do not feel guilty about this. 
um, we're, we're very comfortable with the decision we made um, to pursue comfort care or, or to pursue dialysis or whatever it was at that situation. What we know um, as far as CKD, um, kidney diseases, um, according to the CDC, are the ninth leading cause of death in the United States. Um, and there's approximately 37 million adults who have CKD in the United States, um, which is a, a huge chunk of, of people. Um, and they also indicated that nearly 786,000 people are living with end-stage renal disease. 71% um, of those people are on dialysis and 29% are living with a kidney transplant. Um, with the dynamics and with the, the different stages and the trajectory um, with CKD, it's, it's not surprising that advanced care planning is a very unique process for, for patients with CKD. Um, and it's gonna be an ongoing evolving process throughout their course, most likely. Um, one thing we also know about people with CKD that makes advanced care planning a little bit more unique is they usually have multiple comorbid conditions um, that have essentially led or contributed to their CKD. Um, so not only do they have you know, just the one diagnosis, they typically have um, several other diagnoses that can play a role with their overall well-being, their health, their trajectory, et cetera. Um, and they often have evolving and changing contextual issues as well when it comes to their diagnosis, um, which makes it even more important to have these discussions and these documents prepared. Um, as I've mentioned, it's a dynamic and evolving process. So it's very multifactorial. And I'm guessing that you all are pretty aware of this, that um, these patients tend to have so many different physical aspects, emotional, um, psychosocial, financial um, aspects that um, contribute to what's going on in their care and their treatment. Um, so their advanced care planning is certainly affected by those things as well. Um, you know, if you look at their support system, do they have family members who are able to, to drive them? to and from dialysis. You know, my grandfather was on dialysis for years. Thankfully, he had 10 children, adult children, who were able to take him back and forth to dialysis Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. Not everybody has that support system. Um, or maybe, you know, their living situation is not ideal. Um, maybe they're not able to get in and out of the car anymore. So it's, they're not able to get to their dialysis chair, which I know is an issue for a lot of patients. So there's a lot of things that can really impact um, their goals and their, the treatment options they do or do not want to pursue. Um, ideally, advanced care planning begins early in the continuum of CKD. Um, so hopefully long before um, end-stage renal kidney disease is an issue or comes up. Um, if you have these discussions earlier, it gives the patient and the family time to think about things um, and they're not making decisions in an urgent panic manner. Um, advanced care planning is preparatory to making decisions about RRT and starting or even trying to prevent dialysis. Um, again, we're trying to prevent them from making a decision in a um, urgent panicked situation. So if, if, if these discussions are held 
um, before it gets to be that point, they might already know what they do or do not want, or maybe they know what they need to do to prevent dialysis, or they know what the drawing line is. You know, I do not want dialysis. So if it gets to that point, I already know that I'm not going to do dialysis at that point. You know, maybe we need to get palliative care involved, um, or maybe need to get hospice involved even. Um, so with, with ACP in, in those with CKD, um, early planning, early discussions help identify goals and values. They help develop a care plan. They help prepare future decision-making. Um, it really highlights the importance of a patient-centered approach. Um, it promotes dialogue and discussion amongst family members and the care team, um, hopefully earlier on. And it enhances education about the disease, uh, disease pro progression, trajectory, prognosis, and what the treatment options are, um, including those that you know impact everyday life for these individuals. Um, so I have a few things down there that you know um, some of the treatment options and some things that they have to take into consideration when they're um, trying to decide what what is the best route for me in my in my healthcare. Um, you know, do they do in-home dialysis versus going to a center for dialysis? I've had several patients go back and forth about what would be the best option for them or what's feasible for them. Will they have a caregiver there to help them with in-home? Um, do they have family to take them to their, the center dialysis, um, et cetera. All right. And just, I'm being sensitive to time here. Um, so some precautions, um, try to be sensitive to disease, age, social, ethical, psychosocial, spiritual, cultural context. Um, a big one here, um, the patient must be alert and they must have decision-making capacity to prepare or to complete an advanced directive. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, um, to help somebody with a power of attorney document or an iPost and the patient is is not awake, they're comatose, they're delusional or delirious. Um, so they have to be alert with decision-making capacity. It is an evolving process um, that will likely or possibly change. Um, and most advanced directives do require a notary and or witnesses to be a valid document. So the patient signing it a lot of times is not enough that needs to be either a notary or witnesses to help with that. Um, so there are several different types of advanced directives to help people outline what their treatment preferences are or what um, they do not want. Um, a living will. Um, so every state, let me back up a little bit. Every state does have advanced directives. They're just very state to state. So what we have here in Iowa might be a little bit different than what Illinois has and Minnesota, et cetera. Um, in Iowa, we do have um, a living will document. Um, which is essentially a document stating your wishes about the administration of life-sustaining medical treatment in the setting of an, a serious or a terminal medical condition, um, a durable power of attorney um, for healthcare, a DPOH, DPOAHC is what we call it quite a bit, is a document appointing someone to make healthcare decisions for you if you cannot make them for yourself. Um, this is very much different than a financial power of attorney. I wanted to point that out because sometimes people re will refer to a general healthcare power of attorney that's in the chart. Um, but we have to be, be careful with that. That's a financial one. It's not uh, a healthcare one. So two very different things. 
um, iPost, um, which is a uh, portable document um, that is signed by the patient or their decision maker, surrogate decision maker, and a physician or a provider um, that allows the patients to communicate their preferences for key life-sustaining treatments. So this document um, we tend to do with patients on our unit if they're going home with hospice or end-of-life care um, we will want to make sure that the DNR orders and the comfort care orders follow them wherever they go. So in the ambulance, in their home setting, in their nursing home, um, we want to make sure that we're honoring their wishes. So we um, fill out an iPost and it goes with the patient wherever they go and um, EMS crews and nursing home staff, fire departments, they are all trained to look for this salmon piece of paper um, that has their uh, documented um, preferences on there. Um, and then honoring wishes is a very um, thorough, longer document um, that allows people to select both a healthcare uh, power of attorney agent, and it also provides very um, detailed instructions regarding what their healthcare choices would be. Um, so I'm going to, um, let me see here, try to pull up couple examples here. Um, so what I have up here right now is um, the, it's a combined living will and medical power of attorney document. So you'll see the first section here um, talks about if I were in an incurable or irreversible condition that will result either in death um, or a permanent unconscious vegetative state, um, a person would not want um, the administration of life-sustaining procedures. Um, and then this next section here too is where the person would identify or appoint someone to be their healthcare power of attorney. So they would appoint somebody to make decisions for them if they're not able to make their own. Um, so this is available. I, I know most social workers have this available or I know a lot of units actually have these readily available on their floors. Um, it does require that the patient sign um, the document, um, and then it also requires a notary or two witnesses to make it valid. Um, and it allows one person, uh, the person to say, you know, I want this person to be my primary, but then I want this person to be my backup just in case the primary person is not available or maybe they have their own health issues or X, Y, or Z. Um, this next document is um, the IPOST, the Iowa Physician Orders for Scope of Treatment. This is the portable document that goes with the patient wherever they go and identifies what their preferences are. Um, it, it's salmon. Typically, it's salmon in color. Um, that way, it's, it's very noticeable and visible to people, but the white copy is valid and can be sent with patients as well. So you'll see section A here talks about, does the patient want CPR or DNR? Do they wanna be DNR? Um, section B um, talks about um, comfort measures only, which is probably the one we do the most with the palliative care team. Um, some people do pick this limited additional interventions. Um, and then other people every now and then if they're pursuing maybe full aggressive cares or treatment will we'll click this full treatment option, which is saying I'm okay with um, going to the ICU. I'm okay with pressors. I'm okay with intubation or ventilation if needed. Um, so this is the pretty much the opposite spectrum of comfort measures only. 
Um, this next section here talks about artificial nutrition. Um, do they want artificial nutrition? And if they do want it, do they want it long-term or do they want it short-term? So it allows them to identify what their preferences would be in that case as well. Um, and then this is the honoring your wishes. This is legal here in Iowa. It's a legal form. And it's a, this is the very thorough, detailed one that I know a lot of people fill out maybe earlier in their treatment course when they have time, you know, they think about these things, what would be important, you know, what do I want? What, what do I not want? Um, so this section is where the durable power of, uh, power attorney for healthcare decisions. Um, they're able to identify some healthcare agents. Um, and then it can talk about who, you know, who should my healthcare agents include in these decisions. So maybe I have my sister as my healthcare power attorney, but I would like her to involve my parents in the discussions. That would be important to me to have her include those in those. Um, or, you know, if somebody is of a specific religion or faith, you know, do they want a pastor or a priest contacted? Um, are there any prayers or rituals that they would want to be, um, you know, a part of during, during that time? Um, I have these requests from my healthcare team. Um, these are important to me for comfort and support. Is there certain music? Are there visitors they want to see? Are there visitors maybe they don't want to see? Um, you know, if, when I filled my document out, I said, I hate being cold. Make sure I'm not cold. Make sure I have warm, fuzzy socks on um, and lots and lots of blankets. That's, that would be very important to me um, if I am at end of life. So just it gives them a very thorough opportunity here to, to really mark what's important to them or what things maybe are not important to them. Um, this section talks about CPR, stopping treatments if I have a severe, severe permanent brain injury. Um, do I want organ donation? Do I want to donate my body to science or to any other particular group? So it's a very thorough one. Um, and I realize I'm probably cutting it close to time. So I'm going to stop talking now. I think I hit most of what I wanted to say. Um, but I think, you know, if you have patients, I, one important thing is to just start the educational piece as early as possible, be honest, be transparent with them, um, involve the social worker um, for advanced care planning to work on some of these documents earlier in the game and, and be a part of these discussions with them. Um, yeah, any questions for Yuya or I? Um, I realize we just went over a lot of information in a very short amount of time. I think one thing that would be helpful is if you can comment on maybe how interested the palliative care clinic and what kind of availability the clinic has to help the nephrology team with some of these advanced care planning or what kind of referrals might you be looking to get from us because we have lots and lots of patients and we recognize that the palliative care team um, probably like nephrology is also understaffed so um, could you just comment about, um, yes, potential referrals? Mm -hmm. And, and you, yeah, might be able to talk more about the outpatient clinic side. I I'm typically only on the inpatient side. I would love to be able to help out more in the clinic. I just don't have the capacity to do that. Um, I know certainly on the inpatient side, um, 
our team would is very happy to be a part of these goals of care discussions. Um, if capacity allows, I would love to go fill out, help fill out, you know, advanced care planning documents or healthcare power attorney or on your wishes. Um, I know, I know um, there are several um, fantastic uh, social workers that are part of the dialysis teams and, um, and I know they do an amazing job um, with these discussions and with these documents as well. Um, I know we're certainly trying to beef up our uh, inpatient service a little bit in terms of staffing. So um, I know we would like to help as much as we're able to. So, you know, if you have questions or if you have consults, you can always throw them our way. Um, and yeah, Dr. Hagiwara, maybe you can explain or answer the outpatient side a little bit better. Sure, sure, and I, and I think you know you know we were talking about going upstream upstream with these discussions, and so unfortunately a lot you know if, if it's an inpatient consult, it becomes a situation in the MICU where it's already a life or death situation versus we want to have these conversations much early on. Uh, our clinic we do have one provider in Monday through Friday, um, but our our slots are limited, and so this is probably where. I mean, I think we would love to start talking with, I mean, nephrology and also I mean, involving leadership um, and, and see what ways, you know, this could be done best. Because uh, as other uh, facilities are doing, you know, there um, several facilities are working on automated like screening process. So if you meet this, you know, you know, with your GFR, with symptoms, you know, like having a screening form to be filled out, you know, make it uh, an early referral for maybe getting introduced uh, with symptom management. Um, there are um, facilities that have embedded palliative care clinics within a nephrology clinic. Um, and then uh, and then there is Pittsburgh that has the dual trained nephrologist slash palliative care physician and they do they have a nephro palliative care clinic. And so of course you know if, if we could get for the future someone dual trained, that might be an option for the future as well. And so, um, but yeah, for, for now, I mean, I mean, definitely um, place a referral for ACP or girls of care discussion for the outpatient palliative clinic. Uh, but yeah, I think we, we really should look at how we could integrate the two specialties together further. Any other questions? And I'm just curious, has, has, I mean, has anyone been doing more of this conservative kidney management? I saw that pallet dialysis isn't available here. Anyone ex with experience? Or is that rel still relatively new here? I mean, we manage patients medically. This is Lama, sorry. Uh, we manage patients medically in the renal clinic for those who wish not to undergo dialysis. I mean, they have CKD5. Mm -hmm. We don't have a specific clinic for them. We just, you know, carry our panel of patients. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to have a specific clinic that people can rotate through, but mm -hmm. I think we still haven't had a chance to, you know, have multiple clinics with different expertise other than... Uh, the renal genetics clinic that Christy has. And um, I have a panel of PKD clinic uh, patients, but I don't think we've expanded, um, you know, to have a different, you know, 
different clinics with rotating staff. I mean, that would be nice. I don't think we have the manpower for that yet. But there's a portion of patients that are that choose not to do dialysis. Yes, yeah, there are. Okay. Yes, there, it's a minority of patients, but there are patients mm-hmm. that we treat medically. Um, so this is a sort of a question to Dr. Hagiwara and my nephrology colleagues for patients with comorbidities um, and or advancing age. Is there an attempt to perhaps quantify their likelihood of survival beyond a few months if they start dialysis? Is there an attempt to have a goals of care discussion with everybody who fits a certain phenotype as opposed to waiting for them to decline uh, um, dialysis? Yeah, Christy, I mean, so uh, I, I, so first of all, uh, Dr. Hakimara, thank you very much for coming and presenting at our conference. We appreciate it. Um, and, uh, and Katie as well. I'm Diana Jalal. I'm one of the faculty. I don't think I've met either one of you yet. And I'm predominantly based at the, at the VA. Um, you know, I think this is a, um, this is a very um, important issue for many of our patients, especially as they age. Um, you know, Christy, I, uh, I've in the past, um, in my previous life, I used to give a talk about chronic kidney disease in the elderly. And there is actually um, quite a bit of data out there to suggest that um, particularly for older patients with comorbidities, initiation of dialysis will prolong life um, by an average of 18 to 24 months. So, you know, by the most, by a couple of years. Um, it's observational data, it has a lot of weaknesses, you know, this isn't something where you could do a randomized, well-designed um, clinical trial, um, but it is clear that dialysis does prolong survival, except for when patients have underlying coronary heart disease or severe congestive heart failure. In those cases, um, it's debatable, um, and some of the evidence would suggest that there's not a survival advantage. And then there's actually a considerable amount of literature that indicates even though these patients may live longer, the quality of their life um, is severely compromised, not just by being on dialysis, but also being in and out of the hospital for procedures related to their access, access-related infections and access complications, um, and you know the high burden of, uh, of uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it is really important for us to figure out how to integrate palliative care um, into our daily practice. Um, at the VA, it's very similar to how it is at the university, um, as uh, Lama was, uh, was indicating. It's sort of, you know, you see the physician. It is, uh, I would hope, integrated in how we all counsel our patients. Um, but we don't um, necessarily have an algorithm Um, And while the VA has pushed hard for everybody to have goals of care discussions and to have life-sustaining treatment notes documented, um, we still struggle with that. We haven't really been able to implement processes um, that integrate that, you know, and and standardize that into into our practice. Um, And I will say, even though we probably at the VA do you know, a fair amount of conservative medical management for our older patients. Um, it's it's not necessarily, you know, geared um, always towards um, symptom management. Um, so, you know, um, you, these patients can have nausea, they can have weight loss, they can have loss of appetite, they can have itching. That actually tends to be a very common complaint. 
Um, and I, I don't necessarily know that, um, that we manage uh, any of that, um, you know, systematically. Um, so I, I mean, I think this is a hot topic in the world of nephrology. And I think for us, a, a, a large portion of our patients, it's extremely relevant. Thanks, Diana. Sure. I agree. Yeah, there's there's a lot. I mean, it's a lot easier for cancer patients compared with organ disease, such as you know, nephrology patients. Because for cancer, a lot there's been, and, and we are also in works of collaborating with our cancer center, maybe screening and having automatic referral for a hospital, I mean, hospitalized patients with like stage four cancer. Uh, but again, I think I think it's it's so difficult to prognosticate um, if it involves other comorbidities, like you said, Dr. Zhao. But yeah, definitely, yeah, if, if we could, I mean, continue to have these conversations and figure out a way to collaborate and also develop a new algorithm, that would be great. I would really like to see a palliative care nurse round on the dialysis units as well. And then I think the nurse could help identify some early patient or patients who might benefit from, I guess by the time people are on dialysis, it's not really an early referral, but who might benefit from palliative care and, and further supportive management, and then can try to link them up with a physician or a nurse practitioner in palliative care. Um, so I think that might be one um, potentially relatively cost-effective way to kind of start this on our dialysis units. Ben, did you have a comment? Well, I did. It kind of goes in a little different direction, but um, so I do more inpatient than outpatient. And we know, we have some data from our institution that about a quarter of the people we start on CRT in the ICU die within 24 hours, which I would say is, it turns out to be feudal care. And a lot of times I think we can kind of see it coming. And I wonder if we should be talking a little more about palliative care in those settings where I think we do do a lot of CRT that isn't useful to anybody. Yes. <laughs> Kirsty agrees. <laughs> so do all of us. I mean, I think the culture of what we do, right, is that, you know, we're going to show up and we're going to fix it. I think dialysis has become very easy to offer. Um, you know, in private practice, the, you know, you get paid, right, to do this. Um, and so there's actually an incentive built in within the system to just dialyze everyone, right? It's, you're not gonna make the same amount of money if you put people on conservative medical management. And I, I, I often, we often observe that quite a bit in Denver, you know, that, you know, you could be 89 and, you know, on a walker with some Alzheimer's and dialyzing in, in uh, one of our Fresenius units, just because nobody, you know, they didn't even think to, to discuss um, palliative care with the family. So, and I think the same culture is, is present on inpatient, right? We are a tertiary referral center. We see these patients. We think we need to offer the, you know, best care possible. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in medicine, that typically resonates with, uh, you know, more surgeries and more procedures and more tests. And we do need to start paying a little more attention to, you know, what, the goals of care are, what are the patient's values, and 
and what the overall uh, prognosis uh, is. But, but I think that requires a big cultural shift personally, um, not just within healthcare, but also within um, you know, patients, right? It's not an easy conversation to have. Um, and it can be misperceived as, you know, that we're, we're depriving people of care. Thank you for everyone's participation and attention. And again, thank you, Dr. Hagawara and Katie for uh, coming and speaking with us. And uh, hopefully we can continue this conversation in the future. Thank you for the invite. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for having us.